um, could I just stop for a moment and ask all of you who um, have served or are serving in the military, whatever branch, if you could just stand for a minute and we could recognize you this Memorial Day weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Bless you. Bless you. Stay standing. No, don't sit down. Don't sit down. Don't, no, don't sit down. Stay standing up. Stay standing up. Well done. Amen. Allow me to just pray over you. Lord, we just thank you for uh, the sacrifice of all of those who have served. We thank you for the freedom that it means for us that I can stand on the stage and I can talk about Jesus and not worry about somebody storming through the doors and arresting me. And we have so many places where we have ministry partners where that's not the case. And it's our freedom that has been won through the sacrifice of these men and women, but also those who have served alongside them, those who have given up their lives for our freedom. We just stop to say thank you uh, for their sacrifice. And we just want to uh, ask that you would bless them this special weekend. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless you. Thank you. Hey, one of the things that uh, happens to me regularly, especially as I travel or visit other churches or do any kind of uh, seminars or whatever, people ask me, what is your church like? What is grace like, right? And what they're asking is, what's the DNA? What does it feel like? How do you guys do church? And the more that I talk about it and the more that I, I sit in front of people and talk about grace, the more that I realize this is a very uh, complicated and unique Place. It is a very unique church, and uh, I think there's probably other churches like Grace, but I think churches are a lot like people. God has made each person uniquely. God has given people unique gifts and talents and, and passions, and I think it's true with churches as well. And so Grace is a, is a complicated, unique place, and so we are in this series for three weeks of kind of talking about just that. Who are we? So we're in this series we've called Hashtag Grace Detroit, This Is Us. And the idea is just to take three weeks and talk about what are some of the unique markers that make grace, well, grace, right? As you participate in the series, I just want to encourage you to use this hashtag if you do anything on social media. That helps to build some momentum around what we're doing. So anytime you do something on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, or if there's something else I don't know about, which I'm sure there's multiple ones, um, if you would just use the hashtag Grace Detroit, that will help to build up a little bit of momentum in that whole thing. Last week, G did a great job of unpacking, unpacking the significant distinction of us being a mosaic. What's our mission statement here? Awesome. We are a mosaic, striving to live like Jesus. And that mosaic is important. I remember when this was uh, a statement of desire, not a statement of fact. I remember when we knew we were supposed to be a mosaic, when we knew that God was calling us to be a mosaic, uh, but to be perfectly honest, we were not a mosaic. I remember uh, when the church just didn't look the way it looked right now. But what I remember is how hard it's been to get there. I remember the people who left because they didn't want the mosaic. I remember the people who uh, kind of called us out and said things like, you guys are more interested in diversity than you, in, than you are in the gospel. You know, there's, there's, just, there's been some hard seasons as we've moved along the way. So we're not a mosaic because it's trendy. Uh, we're certainly not a mosaic because it's easy. It's been pretty difficult to do. We're a mosaic because it's the gospel lived out. 
We're a mosaic because, amen, yeah, you can clap for that. We're a mosaic because Jesus has called us to be reconciled to one another. He's called us to be brothers and sisters and not to let social markers identify who's in and who's out. So here we have this church that I don't know if you know this, but we're celebrating 120 years of being in the city of Detroit this year. And I think the reality that, it's, that we are still having an impact, that we are still a church that's doing some great things is just a testament to the movement of God. Sometimes when I sit in front of people and talk about grace and what we're doing at Grace, the question's always asked, how did you guys do it? How did you do the mosaic thing? And, and I would just have to say, it's a God thing. And actually, when we tried to make it happen, we got ourselves in some trouble. And when we allowed God to do what God was doing, somehow he made it happen in a powerful way. It's not to say we didn't have to show up, but it certainly is a movement of God in this place. And I think G did a great job of unpacking that. So if you haven't heard that message, powerful, powerful message, I would just encourage you to go online, listen to it, so that you get the full complement of these uh, three-part series that we're doing. So we're in the book of Acts. Grab your Bible, turn to Acts chapter two. G took us right up to verse 41. And what, if you remember, what he talked about was last week, coincidentally, was Pentecost Sunday. And he talked about Pentecost. And that's when the spirit of God descended. If you remember, the people were in the upper room and the, the spirit came as, as a fire. And it, all these men started to talk in different languages. You remember this? They began to speak in tongues. But the tongues that they were speaking were actually languages that people could understand from all these. So we had all these people from all over the globe who were visiting for the, the festival, and suddenly they could hear the gospel proclaimed in their own language. One of the things I think is fascinating is they accused them of being drunk. Now, I'm not saying I've ever been drunk, but I do know that I've never learned or seen anybody learn a foreign language by drinking. But anyway, that was their explanation for how crazy this was. They were so perplexed. Hey, these guys must be drunk. And then I also love what Peter says. We're not drunk. It's, it's not even noon yet, which read whatever you want into that. I just think it's a funny way it all goes. <laughs> but anyway, so right, they, they start speaking in tongues and then they ask Peter what's going on. And Peter preaches really what becomes the first sermon of the new church. And it says 3,000 souls were added to their numbers that day. That's a pretty good coming out party, right? That's a pretty good church plant. First message, 3,000 souls come to Jesus. And what you have here is just this dynamic picture of the early church, right? It's just a powerful description of what the early church must have been like. And what we're going to do is we're going to start reading in verse 42. We're going to read through verse 47. Uh, in my Bible, this little section of scripture is entitled The Fellowship of the Believers, and being an avid Lord of the Rings nerd, I always think of the Fellowship of the Rings, but that's just me. I don't know if you go there, but anyway. Verse 42, and they, talking about the church in general, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Let me read that one more time because I just think that should be printed somewhere on the wall. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. It's a picture of the mosaic. 45, and they were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as, as any had need. And day by day, attending in the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their numbers day by day those who were being saved. Let me pray for us. Lord, I just pray uh, as we move into this uh, uh, passage that you would just reveal truth. Lord, I pray that you would speak directly to each person's heart in this room, that you would show them that you are a personal God, that you would say a word either through me, through the worship, or just through your spirit itself, that they would hear you speak to their hearts, that that word from you would land on fertile soil, that it would uh, go deep, the roots would go deep, that it would bear fruit a hundredfold. Lord, our prayer today is the same prayer that we've had every week, that people would leave different than they came, because they sat in the presence of the living God. Amen? Amen. So just in verse 42, we have these four foundations of the early church, just in 42. And and I'm gonna walk through these four foundations. I'm gonna do them relatively quickly. You could actually do a sermon on each one of these, but I'm gonna walk through each one relatively quickly. But then I'm gonna circle back to one of them because I think we need to kind of lean in and get better at one of these foundations. So the first foundation we see comes out of verse 42 where it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the first foundation is doctrine. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were committed to learning and growing and understanding what it means to walk with Jesus. They were committed to understanding what does the, do the scriptures say? What is God up to? Who is God? Excuse me. <coughs> what does God desire from me? Here's what I want you to know. Your doctrine, what you believe about God matters. As a a matter of fact, what you believe about God shapes all of your responses to life circumstances, right? So your doctrine makes a huge difference in your life. So it's important that you, as a follower of God, that we as a church are always emphasizing, understanding, and growing in our doctrine. And you don't arrive. You don't ever get to the point where you know all you need to know about God. This is a lifelong journey of sinking into and learning more and more about who God is, what God has done, what God is going to do. But understanding doctrine is a critical foundation to you as a follower of Jesus and to us is a healthy church. This is why we do the 15 minutes with God. I think it's fascinating. People say to me all the time, well, I can't do that in 15 minutes. And we know that, but what we're asking is, will you at a minimum commit 15 minutes every day? If you got five minutes to read a chapter of scripture, we assign that out and you can follow ours or you can do your own. Uh, Right now we're reading through the book of Acts. So five minutes reading uh, a chapter of scripture, five minutes listening to God about that passage. God, what do you want me to hear? What do you want to say to me? What do you want me to learn from that? And then five minutes journaling about what you heard. People say to us all the time, well, it takes me 25, 30 minutes. Good, it takes me 45 minutes. Awesome, takes you an hour? Great. The idea is will you at least give 15 minutes a day to help to grow in your understanding of scripture and to be more grounded in your doctrine. This is one of the reasons why we teach through books of the Bible, because we want your doctrine to be solid. We want you to understand what the scriptures say and why they say what they say. So the first foundation is doctrine. The second that we see in there is fellowship. And this is the one I'm gonna come back to and and talk about in a little more detail. But what we see is that the people met together in, in the homes, outside of the synagogues, outside of the temple. It says they met in the temple and they gathered together in the homes. They came together, they cared for one another, they knew each other beyond the larger gathering, okay? It even says that they knew each other so well that they were willing to sell some of their possessions when someone had need in order to help the other person in their time of need. 
doctrine, fellowship. And the third one is communion. Almost all biblical scholars believe that that first reference where it says the breaking of bread, you see that in verse 42? The word the becomes an indicator to us that this is not any normal breaking of bread. It's actually a reference to that that moment that Jesus, that ordinance that Jesus established in the upper room when he said, whenever you come together, do this in remembrance of me. And so when they say the, 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 the writer is, is specifically pointing towards a specific breaking of bread. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading down at verse 46, we see the words breaking bread in their homes. The word the in the original language isn't there, and that becomes a more general understanding. They had Meals together, yes, but they also stopped and they took this communion together. Why was that important? Well, why did Jesus tell us to do it? He said, every time you do it, remember. So we must, as humans, have a tendency to forget. If Jesus was saying, every time you're together, take the cup, take the bread, and remember the sacrifice that I made for you. Remember that everything you have is because of me. Remember that the Holy Spirit in your life is because of the sacrifice I made. Remember all that I've done for you. Because as we remember all that Christ has done for us, it becomes motivation for how we're supposed to live towards others. So we are to come together. We are to take communion. It was a chance for the early church to constantly remember who Christ is. Who was Jesus? What did Jesus do? Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus raise from the dead? Why did Jesus ascend? Why did Jesus send the Holy Spirit? Communion was a moment to remember. So we're going to take communion in the end of the service, and it's just a chance for you to remember. But it's a chance for you even now to begin. Thank you. I don't know why that threw me off, but thank you. Anyway, so we're going to take communion. Fourth foundation. We got doctrine, fellowship, communion, and the last one we see in here is prayer. And the truth is prayer is the foundation for your life. Prayer is the, the foundation for a healthy family. Prayer is the foundation for a healthy church. So we at Grace have really been on a journey for the last four or five years of really developing and, and, and having a culture of prayer. What we knew a few years ago when we looked at churches, yes, we believed in prayer, but I don't know that prayer was really part of our DNA. It seemed like quite often we would start things, and then when it wasn't going well, we would come back and say, well, maybe we should pray about it, as opposed to praying about it, and then hearing God say, I want you to start it, and then we would cover it in prayer. So it, it just was, it sounds like a minor shift, but, but there was something going on here. God was calling us to, to have a much greater culture of prayer. So we have a thing here called restorative prayer. And restorative prayer is just an opportunity for any one of you who are dealing with any kind of residual stuff, difficulties, to come and sit with a couple of people who will guide you through a prayer process of, of unveiling some of the stuff that's still holding you back from all of what God has for you. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. So if you are, even as I'm talking about it, if you're feeling like, man, I could use that, you come down after the service and you say, I think I want to do that restorative prayer thing Doug was talking about, and we'll schedule it, and we'll sit with you, and we'll help you to do that. We have people that meet here on Wednesday nights and they pray for the church and they pray for the leaders of the church and they pray for our ministry partners and that's part of the culture of prayer. We have people that meet before every service and they pray for you and then as they pray for you, they listen to God and then they write down the things they feel like God is saying that, that he wants to say to you as a congregation and they give that to me so that I can use it as a part of closing the service and we have this, uh, all kinds of cool prayer things going on. One of the things we do that I love and I would love for everyone in this room to participate in is the 930 prayer. So right now we have a little over 900 people who are committed to praying for us uh, every morning at 930. So if you're with Grace people, 
uh, often you will hear their alarm go off at 9.30. Sometimes in the grocery store, you will hear people's alarms going off and you'll look around the aisle and be like, do you go to Grace? Yeah, you go to Grace. It's just that thing. When your alarm goes off at 9.30, would you stop and just pray for us? Pray for the church, pray for the leadership of the church, just pray. People are like, I don't know what to pray. If every time it goes off, all you pray is, God, would you just help Grace Community Church? Would you just be present in Grace Community Church? Would you help the leaders not to be buffoons? Whatever you wanna pray, right? Just pray for us, pray for the leadership, pray for the church. It can be a, literally a 10 second prayer, a five minute prayer, it doesn't matter. If you're in the boardroom and your alarm goes off, turn the alarm off and just pray in your mind and uh, people are gonna ask you, what's that all about? You can say, oh, we pray for our church at 9.30 every morning. It's a great chance for you to have a little bit of witness. So the idea here is you can take out your phones right now. I give you permission. I bless you. Take out your phones and you just type in 9.30, prayer all caps, where you would normally be texting to somebody and you send it to this number, 41411, and voila, you're part of that text chain that we use to communicate with you all that's going on. So why don't we do that today? We'll get over 1,000 people and meet that goal of 1,000 people praying. Thank you for the water. All right, I'm stalling so you can sign up now. So in one verse, verse 42 of Acts, we see these four foundations of the church, doctrine, fellowship, communion, and prayer. And if I were to leave you there, we would have this portrait of the church, but it would only be a partial portrait. The book of Acts has a lot more to say about what the early church was like. So even with thousands of people coming to Christ and all of these incredible miracles happening all around, and even with people selling all their stuff and and helping one another, the church was still a mess. And it was full of difficulties. From the very outset, just get this, from the very outset, the church was, had met difficulties. We need to accept this reality for a minute so that we're not thrown off guard when we go through the difficult seasons. From the passage we read in Acts 2 all the way really through all of Acts 4, it's sort of this picture of, a, of almost the honeymoon. It's a, to use the words we've been using over the last several weeks, it is a season of orientation for the church. Everything is hunky-dory. Right? Everything is going smoothly. Everything is exactly the way it should be. There doesn't seem to be any hiccups. And man, people are being healed. Peter's walking down the street and people are being healed in his shadow. Right? I mean, this is a lot of really good stuff. Thousands of people coming to Christ. This is the season of orientation. But man, when you hit chapter five, problems start. Now, chapter five, the church is still just a baby. We're not talking about years and years later. The apostles are still in charge, and they're running the church, and all of a sudden, you have all this going on. I'm just gonna walk through some of these hiccups in the church just so that you can get a sense of some of the chaos. Some of these Pastor G talked about last week. So chapter five, we have these people named Ananias and Sapphira. You remember that story, crazy story? They come in, they lie to the church leadership about how much they sold a piece of property for. Because they lied, God strikes them dead, right? Now, let's just, if you ever read those stories, you can read and be like, well, that's weird. Well, if you put yourself in the shoes, it's more than weird, right? If that were to happen right now, that, that would cause some chaos in the church, wouldn't you think, right? It would be a little disorienting if God struck a couple of people dead because they lied in church, right? So we can read the story and be like, well, that's cool, but it's, it's pretty crazy, right? Chapter six, we have this situation where we have these 
Greek believers and Jewish believers, and they're not getting along. There's a, a system of oppression and, and power that's, that's working against the Greeks, and they come and they talk about that, and so the church steps in and has to, to kind of deal with the struggles that come with being a mosaic, and then in chapter six, one of the guys that they chose who happened to be a Greek who was helping to, to solve this rift that was between the two groups, he ends up getting martyred by a bunch of Jews so imagine the problem that would have caused in the church, even if it weren't Jews from within the church, it was still Jews, and suddenly we have a Greek guy that's, that's murdered by these Jewish guys. Do you think maybe the church was in a little bit of turmoil while that's going on? Chapter eight, the church comes under intense persecution and is scattered, and they end up in Samaria, which is another place where they just didn't have good vibes with one another, they didn't like one another, a lot of prejudices, and now the church is there. That's gonna create all kinds of problems. By the get to chapter 10, Peter's confronted with his own prejudice. Chapter 15, the leaders of the church have to meet and figure out, okay, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Do you still have to be circumcised? Do you still have to eat all these weird foods? What does it look like to be a Gentile believer? All of this is creating conflict within the church. Right, if you even look at um, Galatians 2, which is the same time period, that's that passage that G talked about last week where Paul had to go to Peter and call him out for his hypocrisy. If you begin to read the scriptures with this lens, if you even look at all of the epistles, maybe with the exception of Philippians, they were all written to address a major problem or riff within the church, right? And so I say all that so that we kind of understand that this is what it means to do life together. We are going to have problems. Right, And if you leave the church because there's a problem, then you're just gonna take your problem to some other church. You can't avoid the fact that we are in relationship. When I, really, when I first started in leadership I used to, at the church, I used to think, what are we getting wrong? Why is this so difficult? And as I've sunk into the scriptures and realized, look, the apostles, the apostles, they were trained firsthand by Jesus. Their churches had problems. Right? It's just part of the nature of being human. But, but what we need to understand is something happens when we navigate through the difficulties. Something happens and the community actually becomes better. It actually becomes more powerful. Right? So we have this opportunity to battle through. And why do you think there's problems? Jesus prayed. This amazing prayer. He said, Father, I pray that they, that's all of us, would be one Right, Just as you and I are one, so that's the marker. We have to be one, just like Jesus and the Father are one, so that the world will know. So what do you think Satan wants more than anything else? He wants us not to be one, because if we're one, the world will know who Jesus is, right? So, so he's, he's attacking our unity. He's going after our unity. So we have seasons of orientation, but we will have seasons of disorientation. And if we are willing to hold together and move together as a mosaic through the seasons of disorientation, what comes on the other side of it is new or reorientation, and it's better than what was before. This makes perfect sense. If you think about even in a, in a marriage, right? Marriages that have gone through difficult seasons but held together, they're better on the other side of it. They're stronger because they've journeyed through it. It makes sense in your, in just in your friendships or in a small group. Whenever you go through a hard season together, you're better at the other side. You have a greater bond with one another, a greater love, a greater affection for one another because you've journeyed through it, right? It makes sense. So critical foundations laid for the early church, doctrine, fellowship, community, and prayer. And we're in a series called Grace Detroit, This Is Us. And so my confession to you 
uh, comes in the area of fellowship. We have a dream of what it should be, but we're not even close. Uh, I would say we have a dangerous crack in our foundation when it comes to fellowship. And while we have a mosaic here, we certainly have not figured out how to have a mosaic in our homes, and that's part of what we need to do over the next couple of years. So if you guys remember, I did a survey, we did a survey over a couple of different weeks because we were just trying to get a baseline to understand some things. And some of the things we learned uh, in that survey, which I love, is um, 40% of the people in this room have been here for three years or less. 40% of you have been at Grace for three years or less. And so that means we have to go back to some of the things we thought we had talked about more often. We have to talk about vision and we have to talk about who we are as a church a little more often so that people know. We kind of make some assumptions that everybody knows that. I've talked about it so many times, but, but we need to come back to some of those, those things and make sure that people know why do we push into the mosaic? Why is it important to us? The other thing that we learned is that 75% of you attend Grace uh, three times or more a month. And that is about twice the national average. Um, which I love. Yeah, you should clap for that. Good. So uh, it actually was, I just went back and looked at it this morning. It was actually closer to 80%. I'm not sure. I think I picked 75 because it was a nice pretty number, but 80% of you attend three times or more a month. And that just tells us that you are committed, that you want something, that you are committed to being here on a regular basis. We've talked a lot about how important the Sunday gathering, so I think that's taken hold. So way to go. Good job. Love that you're here consistently. It gives us a chance to have some uh, cohesion when we teach through a book of the Bible or any of those things. Um, But the statistic that kind of rocked us and that we know we need to address is only 23% of you are connected beyond Sunday morning. 23% 23% are you connected beyond 30 Sunday morning. So verse 46 of the passage we read said, and day by day attended the temple, right? They came to church together and the breaking of bread in their homes. This is just the meals. This isn't a reference to communion. This is just a breaking of bread. They were together. They ate meals together. They got to know each other. They came to church, but they did life relationally. They met in their home. They shared their lives with one another. So the goal for the coming year is to move that statistic of 23% just this year to 50%. And the long-term goal is to get to the place where 80% of you, 75 to 80% of you are connected. If you've been here for six months or more, you are in a C group. So some of you are thinking, what is a C group? A C group is a community group. It's a group that meets every other week. Sometimes in homes, but often we've learned they have to meet here just so that we can keep the groups diverse. So we have living rooms all over the church, down in the basement, the, the uh, fireplace room back there, living room upstairs. And so we built these spaces that look like living rooms so that small groups can meet right here on the campus. But they typically meet every other week. Uh, typically, there are 10 to 20 people, usually mixed gender, men and women, not always. Sometimes there's groups that, that have a specific reason that they're all all ladies or all men, but mostly mixed gender groups, uh, always racially diverse because that's part of us learning to be a mosaic beyond Sunday morning. That's where the real conversations are gonna happen. And they meet for the purpose of connection to one another. They meet for the purpose of fostering uh, and encouraging one another, of caring for one another. It is that place where uh, we come alongside each other in a deeper way. So my experience, Meg and I started coming to Grace 24 years ago, I think, something like that. Um, had no idea I would ever be on staff here. That wasn't a part of it. I was just a lost soul and needed Jesus, and my life was a mess. Meg started coming here, and I eventually came with her. 
Uh, and then we got into a small group right away, a, a C group. And that C group became critical to my spiritual walk because I was in a season where all of my friends were living a different lifestyle. All of my friends were kind of pulling me to some poor behaviors. And I was literally thinking to myself, if I choose Jesus, I will have no friends. If I choose Jesus, I'm gonna go this alone. And it was hard for me because they were my friends, right? And, and so along comes a small group and there's a group of men who just loved me well. They were just good friends to me. And it made it not easy, but it made it easier for me to leave something and know that I wasn't have to, gonna have to go it alone. It was a huge part of me being willing to take a risk. Eventually, those guys pulled me aside. I don't, Meg said I probably shouldn't say this because no one of you are gonna wanna be in a C group. But they pulled me aside and they just said, look, we, we just, we've been watching. We don't think you're loving your wife very well. Some things you probably need to think about. Now, that's hard to hear, but can I tell you, it was transformational. That's what C Group's about. Not just the hard words, but the, the encouragement, the loving. And if we do see things, where are you gonna do that? You can't do that on Sunday morning, right? So there's something that happens in these community groups that we know makes a difference. And the early church knew that it made a difference. So it was a, an integral part of how the church was launched. I believe more life change happens in C Group's than at the weekend service. Now, I don't want you to stop coming on the weekend because something happens here as well, but I think more life change happens in a small group setting where you can encourage and listen to one another. There are 47 one another commands in the New Testament. You know what one another command is? That's like love one another, serve one another, all those times where it says do this with one another, 47 of them. And I'm just gonna read through real quickly. I'm not gonna unpack them, but I'm gonna read through real quickly some of the one another's. And I just want you to be thinking about how, how hard it would be if we could only do this on Sunday morning or on Saturday night, weekend service. So many of these require some sort of deeper connection with people, right? So Ephesians 4 says, in all humility and gentleness with patience, bear with one another in love, eager to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Pretty easy to bear with one another in love when we just come together, sing a few songs, listen to somebody preach, and go home. It changes when we get into the house and have to have conversations. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgive one another as God and Christ forgave you. Galatians 3.13, bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. James 5.16, confess, <coughs> excuse me, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. Be pretty hard to do that on Sunday morning. Bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Let each one of you speak the truth to one another. Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another. Build one another up. 1 Peter 4.9, show hospitality to one another. It requires something more than this if we are going to live into and live out the one another commands of scriptures. Meg and I just drove to Sioux Falls last weekend to participate in, in my graduation, which was great. Thank you for all of your kind words. It means a lot to me. Um, but one of the things we do when we travel on road trips is we listen to books on tape uh, for at least part of the drive. And one of the books we listened to uh, was this book by Brant Wilson. It's called Unoffendable. Um, and I like the book so much that I bought 75 copies and we're selling them back there. And I would just say, if we sell them all and people say they want more, we'll buy more. Um, I think everybody should read this book. It's, um, it's really challenged me. Uh, Brant is uh, really easy to read. He's very funny, very accessible, uh, but it's super challenging. And what he's challenging us is to live like Jesus. 
And one of the things that's clear is that Jesus was not offended by people. He just wasn't offended, and, and, and he didn't take offense to how people behaved even when they were behaving poorly. And probably the most vivid description of this is him on the cross, right? What did he say while he was being crucified? Lord, forgive them. They know not what to do. I'm not sure I would have been there. I might have been pretty angry, right? Pretty brutal death, right? But he, didn't, he wasn't offended by that. So there's something in his book that has challenged me, and I just think, man, if we're gonna live into this thing called community, then this is a book that we need to get into our DNA because the truth of the matter is, and all you gotta do is open social media, we are highly offended at everything. That's why we can't have dialogue because we're offended. No matter which position you take, it's all emotion and offense. And so he's kind of challenging that mindset. I'm offended when people choose a lifestyle that I don't agree with. I'm offended when, when people say things I don't like. I mean, part of what he talked about that challenged me is, look, sometimes I get emails of people that say, you know, you shouldn't have said it this way, you should have said it that way, you shouldn't do this, you should do that. And more often than not, my first response is offense. And the Lord is just saying, you don't have to be offended. Just hear what they say and ask me if it's truth and if there's anything you need to hear, right? There's a different way for us to navigate difficult words. Well, anyway, one of the chapters, he writes a story, and I know it's a little bit long, but I'm gonna read for you because I can't do justice paraphrasing it. Um, but this is right out of the book, and I'm reading it for you uh, because I just keep going back to it and, it, and it's challenged me a great deal. He writes these words. He says, my friend Michael is a very evangelical Christian. He decided to open a coffee shop in a downtown in a city with a large university in the middle of a thriving art scene. He opened it right in the middle of the usual assortment of feminist bookstores and hipster apartments. He planned to bring in big name Christian musicians for concerts and feature evangelical speakers. The local paper wrote about him and his wife in the, their purchase of one of the most significant buildings in the downtown area, as well as their evangelical plans for the coffee house. I winced when I saw the article. I had other friends in that neighborhood and I knew none of them would welcome this development. In fact, before Michael bought the building, it had hosted the community's biggest event of the year. It was an exhibition to benefit AIDS research, and it featured local art, some very intentional transgressive variety. I'm not even sure I know what that means, but I know it's not good. We could see the culture war coming. One of the exhibit organizers saw Michael on the streets and asked him how things were going with the remodel of the building. He also mentioned to Michael that, of course, he and his team were looking for a new place for their exhibit this year. Listen to this. Michael said, no, they wouldn't need to do that. They could still have the event in his building. They were welcome. The guy was stunned. Really, he said, that's not necessary. He knew Michael wouldn't want this kind of crowd in his coffee house. But Michael told him that not only did he welcome them, but that he would pay for all the catering. He'd buy the wine and the hors d'oeuvres. They couldn't believe it. What about the art? Michael would surely be offended by that. Michael said they were welcome anyway, and they were. My wife and I went to the exhibit, and sure enough, they didn't, I didn't like all the art for a variety of reasons, though much of it was stunning and thoughtful and beautiful. But Michael had told the event organizers that he didn't need to appreciate all the art. He just wanted to make them feel at home. Instead of being evicted by Christians from the best location for the exhibit, the artists were welcome. Michael and his wife met everyone at the door. He dressed in a tuxedo and he offered everyone chocolate-covered strawberries. Live music filled the room and it turned out to be the best exhibit the group had ever had. That was Michael's style. He hugged everybody and he talked freely about Jesus, but people didn't mind. He told me he would just talk to people about the goodness of God because he knew deep down 
that everyone is just yearning for a God like that. Christians in the community wanted Michael to be offended. They wanted Michael to draw a line in the sand. You're supposed to get angry. Maybe even picket those kind of people. Michael fed him strawberries. He was less interested in what some Christians thought than he was about his chance to introduce offensive people to God who loves them and wants to change all things. Love, as it turns out, covers a multitude of offenses. So true confession, I think I was a little offended when I read that. I, I, I was riding in the car and thinking, man, I don't know. But in the end, that's the kind of person I wanna be, right? To me, that's a lot closer to, to Jesus than anything else. What was Jesus' reputation? He was a friend to sinners. He hung out with offensive people, right? He hung out with the wrong crowd. That was his reputation. We need to be a little more like that. So the question is, why am I reading this and talking about community? Because I think community is where we practice being unoffendable. I think if we can't do it in here, we will never do it out there, right? If we can't learn, if we can't learn to navigate the difficulties of, of political differences and cultural differences, if we can't learn to navigate it and have a spirit of love and community and belonging to one another, then we're never gonna get it out there. It's where we practice being unoffended. Over the next couple months, we're gonna actively recruit new small group leaders. We're gonna try to launch 25 to 30 brand new small groups in the fall. And really, all I'm asking this week is that you would begin to pray. What does God want for you in this new season of C Group Ministry at Grace? Is he calling you to be a C Group leader? Some of you have been around Grace for a long time. You're probably even in a C Group, but you are well-equipped and able to lead your own C Group. We need you. Some of you are new to Grace and you just wanna be in a C Group. We need you. I just want you to pray. God, what is it that you want me to do? Some of you may want to serve on the leadership team with Meg and I and helping to pull this whole thing together this uh, summer so that we can launch in the fall. All I'm asking today is that you pray, Lord, what is my role in this movement of C groups at Grace? Because we have to sure up the foundation of our church and get busy with C groups, okay? Amen. So we are going to move to communion. Here at Grace, uh, we believe if you said yes to Jesus, this is for you. You don't have to belong to grace. Uh, you don't have to be a part of grace. You just have to know that Jesus is your Lord and Savior and that you've put your trust in him. And if you haven't done that, my encouragement is to do just that. Just open your heart. Say, God, my life is a mess. I've made a whole mess of my life. I've made lots of mistakes. And what I need more than anything is I need Jesus. Would you be my Lord and Savior? It's pretty much that simple. Something profound happens. God comes into your life and changes everything. But if you're willing to pray that prayer, then take communion with us today for the first time. We would love that. So we're gonna ask the servers to come down and I'm gonna pray and uh, we're just gonna let John play a little bit while the elements are coming. And I just encourage you to examine your own life. What do you need to leave here today? What do you need to take with you? Um, hold the elements and we will take them together. So Lord, I just pray uh, that as the, the communion is passed out as we come to the table, that you would remind us of all that you've done, that you would stir in our hearts in a deep place. Show us what we're supposed to leave here and show us what we're supposed to take with us. In Jesus' name, hold the elements, we'll take them together.
tell us that the very night that Jesus was betrayed, in that upper room, he took the bread and he broke it. He said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. As I was just standing over there thinking about it, I was just thinking about how easy it is for us to remember, but not to really remember. The body was broken for us. powerful thing someone willing to go through what Jesus went through to reconcile us to God so we stopped and we remember he said every time you eat it remember me he says in the same way he took the cup Elijah's cup the cup of sacrifice the cup that has represented the Messiah for 1400 years leading up to that moment he said this is my blood shed for you. Every time you drink it, remember me. Lord, I just pray that you would help us to remember, not just in our heads, but deep in our spirits and our hearts. And scriptures also tell us when they finished the meal that they sang a song together, so we had communion every time with a song, singing, so if you wanted to stand and sing with us, John's going to lead us. Let's sing together. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna let me down. You're never gonna let, you're never gonna lift your voice and sing. Thank you.